Welcome to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. I've been working on a story for the past couple of weeks, but last night the whole thing collapsed like a house of cards. It was an anti-war story brought on by Trump threatening to go to war with Iran. His tweets were deeply troubling to me because I'm afraid once the war drums start beating, everything escalates and then it happens. The war comes and there's no way to stop it. There is no anti-war movement in the United States. Protest at this point seems futile, if not dangerous. My idea for the story was to use interviews I recorded years ago, people talking about violence and loneliness, and then write narration, hopefully conveying a sense of dread that would make people want to never go to war again. But then last night, as I was writing the ending, I realized I'd done this story before, two years ago, and played it on this show, and it didn't work. It was a failure, both as a story and in stopping the violence. Somehow I forgot, or I'm stuck in a loop, a twilight zone, or maybe it's just a sign of the times. We keep repeating this cycle, the threat of war, the fear of war, never-ending war. So last night was rough. I felt like all was lost. This morning, however, I realized I have a story by the master, Joe Frank, that could be like a phoenix rising from the ashes. It's Joe's anti-war story, originally broadcast in 2014 on Unfictional, a program from KCRW in Santa Monica. The story is called Dreamers, and it has the structure of a drawing by M.S. Escher. He lived in a poor Arab village. The main street was an unpaved dirt road. Water was brought in by truck three times a week, from which his family filled their plastic jugs. And the electricity, which ran the TVs, the lights, and the fans, was provided by local generators powered by gasoline. His father had lost both legs to an artillery shell in the 1967 war. Now confined to a wheelchair, he was a devout Muslim who decried the existence of Israel. At the local mosque, he called for attacks on Israeli towns and cities and extolled the bravery of Hamas fighters willing to risk their lives by murdering Jews. On the hill above the village, a new Israeli settlement was being built. So far, only a few concrete buildings with fortifications, surveillance outposts, and a perimeter of barbed wire. One day, a Hamas recruiter came to his school to enlist children as suicide bombers. Wishing to avenge his father, he began training. They wanted him to approach the new Israeli settlement dressed as a Hasidic student and blow himself up at the guard post. They fitted him with a vest with eight sticks of dynamite, around which were ball bearings and nails, so that when he detonated the bomb, a cloud of shrapnel would explode outward, maiming and killing as many Israeli soldiers as possible. And so one morning, he found himself wearing a long black overcoat and a beaver hat, making his way up the road to the new settlement. He kept his eyes downcast and walked quickly, as though he was on an errand, when he heard a young Jewish soldier at the gate 
call out to him. Stop. Who are you? Where are you going? If you take one more step, I will be forced to shoot. His heart pounding and his body drenched with perspiration, he ignored the soldier's warning and continued moving forward, his thumb poised on the button that would detonate the bomb. When, suddenly, he woke up and realized he was not an Arab boy about to kill himself and murder others, but an Israeli soldier who'd fallen asleep at his post overlooking the very Arab village he just dreamt he was from. Born in the Orthodox Jewish community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, he'd only recently come to Israel with his family. Now in the army, and no longer under the thumb of his strictly religious father, he had renounced his faith and become a secular Jew. The truth is that he had come to hate God. In his view, the deity was nothing more than a cruel and malicious old pervert. He imagined God pacing from room to room in his mansion in heaven, dreaming up new catastrophes on earth. African famine, genocide, and pandemic disease were deeply satisfying to him, but his greatest achievement remained the Nazi death camps of the 1940s. Nevertheless, the future was full of promise, with the proliferation of chemical, biological, and atomic weapons already being carried in the briefcases, backpacks, and heels of psychopathic religious killers. Yes, the future was rife with wonderfully hellish scenarios, and while God waited impatiently for them to unfold, he liked to keep things interesting with a plane crash, a forest fire, a ship lost at sea, a hostage crisis gone terribly wrong. If God were a resident on earth, he thought, he would be considered criminally insane. And now he was looking down the road at a young Hasidic student quickly approaching on foot, the same figure he'd imagined himself to be in his dream. And he called out, Stop! Who goes there? Who are you? Who are you visiting? What is your purpose? But the young Hasid didn't answer. And he called out again, If you do not stop, I will be forced to shoot. But even this warning did not deter the student, who continued to approach. And he called out again, One more step, and I will open fire. And the only thing that prevented him from doing so was his awareness of the existence of a deaf Hasid who lived in a nearby settlement, considered a saint on earth, one of Israel's most treasured scholars. From infancy, he'd been able to read the Talmud, and now, barely a teenager, he'd already written brilliant commentaries on Holy Scripture that raised profound questions rather than offer narrow, dogmatic answers. It was said, that he was beyond religion. And so, either this deaf saint or a would-be suicide bomber wearing a kaftan and a beaver hat continued to approach, unresponsive to the young soldier's warnings. And soon he would be close enough to hurl a grenade and to press the button on an exploding vest to blow up a bunker, allowing a small army of Arab assassins to come in and destroy the settlement. Now approaching the checkpoint at this very moment was the pastor of a church in Willow Cross, Mississippi. He was riding with his family in their Ford Explorer. They'd spent that afternoon at the Israeli settlement, 
as guests of the chief rabbi there, where the pastor had enjoyed a wonderfully stimulating conversation with her host on the question, to whom is the Holy Land more sacred? The pastor spoke of his respect for the Jews insofar as they were the original people of the book. But this land, he argued, was where God's only son had been brought to Bethlehem, where on Golgotha, Jesus had been crucified and resurrected three days later. This was where Jesus had walked among the people and preached and performed miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding the thousands with a single fish and a loaf of bread. This was where, at the Last Supper, he'd learned who would betray him and who would remain his disciples. So this was sacred and hallowed Christian ground. And now the pastor and his wife and son and daughter were riding down a road on their way out of the Israeli settlement, singing, My Bible for a Road Map, when they saw the young Hasid trudging toward the guard post. And as they approached him, the pastor experienced a blinding flash, then profound silence for what seemed like an eternity, and then the ear-splitting thunder of an explosion. And he felt a rush of hurricane-like wind and could feel the car lifted high above the road and slowly spinning in the air in an arc through empty space. And his last thoughts were for his wife and two children. When he woke up, and realized he'd been dreaming. He was at home in Mississippi. It was one of those warm, balmy summer nights. He could hear the branches of the willow tree brushing against the side of the roof, the sound of a distant freight train, and a dog barking. The dream had been so terrifying that he found himself drenched with sweat, and yet, at the same time, felt chilled to the bone his body trembling. He looked over and observed his wife sleeping. Then he saw the packed suitcases, the passports laid out on a table next to the American Express traveler's checks, and remembered they were about to fly to the Holy Land. He looked at the alarm clock, its glowing phosphorescent dial reading 510, and knew that in a few minutes the alarm would go off because they had to be at the airport by seven. He rose from his bed and walked down the hall to the children's room and looked in at his son and daughter who were sleeping, his little girl hugging her doll, his son sucking his thumb, his new baseball mitt on the floor beside his bed. Then he went downstairs, poured two fingers of Jack Daniels into a water glass and drank it down. And he walked out onto the porch and listened to the crickets and the wind rustling the leaves of the willow tree. And he could not help but feel that his dream was a foreshadowing of what was to come, a tragic vision of the future. His family was excited about going to Palestine. For his wife, a devout Christian, this was the trip of a lifetime. This was where she would be able to touch the very soil upon which Jesus had walked. Then he heard the alarm clock ring and saw a light go on in the upstairs bedroom and then a dimmer light in the curtained hallway window and then another light in the children's bedroom. And he heard the faint sound of a faucet being turned on and the excited voices of his children and a radio turned to bluegrass music. And he walked out onto the lawn 
and knelt and clasped his hands and looked up at the star-filled sky and asked God for guidance. But he heard nothing but the sound of the crickets and the wind and a distant freight train that was taking forever to pass. And seen from high above, the freight train was moving along a river beyond which was a fenced-off field in which horses were quietly standing and sleeping and barns and outbuildings and fields of cotton and a small town with a single main street leading to a courthouse square with a monument of a Confederate soldier on a pedestal with the names of the dead from the town and steepled churches and single and two-lane blacktops feeding into a larger interstate with steady traffic and then suburbs and feeder roads and shopping centers and malls and gas stations and used car lots and bridges over rivers leading into cities with their capital buildings and business districts and residential high-rises and hospitals and stadiums and concert halls. Their lights still twinkling as dawn was creeping over the horizon and beyond that enormous plains and great forests and huge river systems leading to the foothills of purple mountains that ran north and south. And beyond that, the sparkling expanse of deep blue oceans and the contours of Europe and Asia, where there was a light side and a dark side as the globe turned in the sunlight. And seen from even higher above and at a greater distance, the earth receding into a small stone in the firmament. And further back, our solar system disappearing into the Milky Way and further back yet into the darkness of the most profound silence imaginable in the endless, the unknowable, and the infinity of time and space without beginning or end. You've been listening to Dreamers by the late, great Joe Frank. For more Joe Frank stories, check out his website, joefrank.com. To see two excellent photos of Joe, check out our website, homebrave.com. The photos were taken by his wife, Michael Story, who I'd like to thank for letting me play this piece on my show. Thank you very much for listening and supporting this show. America, please, no more war.